Dr. Mustafa Sultan is an F1 doctor working in Manchester. While he was a medical student, he started the Big Picture Medicine podcast and has since interviewed a long list of impressive guests, including various medical startup founders and high achievers in academics and medicine. He also started Explain This Paper, a website that summarizes AI healthcare papers for doctors and has received funding from Santander and Newcastle University. We discuss lessons he's learned from his podcast guests over the years and how AI will be implemented in healthcare in the next few years. Tell us about your pathway to where you are now. Yeah, so I spent my whole life trying to get into medical school. And then once I got to medical school, it seemed like I tried to spend the whole time trying to get out. So it was a pretty standard story, like Pakistani immigrant parents, uh, dad was a doctor and always thought that was for me. Although when I was around 10 or 11, I did want to become a businessman for a little bit. And I'd always be doing this or like have a little web design business or be doing little entrepreneurial side things. Um, but I got into medical school and although I really liked it and I thought it was like an amazing six years, I think I felt like sometimes it wasn't exactly the right fit for me. And I wasn't the type of person who probably suited being a doctor because um, I felt like sometimes you'd go into hospital and I felt like we weren't making that much of a difference. It felt like you were putting out fires and I was thinking, why don't we stop the fires from happening in the first place? So I started thinking and looking to people who were doing what I considered like bigger picture things. So people who were having an impact at scale and those kinds of people really started to interest me. To be honest, when I was on the ward, I don't think I was particularly excited by anything. And it wasn't, you know, people say when you're, what you think about when you're in the shower should be the thing you pursue. And it was never clinical medicine. It was always these bigger things that were still helping people, still helping the world, but uh, from a different angle. So around my fourth year, I took a year out to do the imperial management degree, uh, which is specially designed for medical students who want to learn about the business world. And I had a year in London, so I was at med school in Newcastle, but I came here to London for a year. And I just started messaging as many people as I could. I was like, right, deer in headlights, I'm in I'm in London. There's loads of awesome people here. I need to meet as many people as I can. And after the first few conversations, I realized that I've got the memory of a goldfish. So I just forgot everything they'd mentioned and I'd like frantically be making notes. And I just thought, why don't I just record this and then I can re-listen to it. And then from that, I started making the podcast and kept on meeting more and more people and just started trying to really explore my insights into other things. So I guess now I'm at a critical period where I'm training as a junior doctor and that's really to kind of understand how health works basically because I think there's a lot of things out there that have been designed by programmers or by business people and you just think that would never work in the real world or that wouldn't really solve a real problem in healthcare or you approach this the wrong way so I think it is really valuable to understand how patients think how how people think and how the health system works and that's probably what my foray into medicine is is going to be to be honest so i'm i don't know where i'm going to go but uh i hope it's somewhere exciting so you mentioned your podcast there uh and you've had some fantastic guests on there uh tons of really really awesome people so out of all of the guests that you've spoken to what have been the most important factors for success amongst them that you've kind of found so far yeah this is a really good question because it condenses down probably hundreds of hours of <laughs> work into key insights, which I really, really rate. So I think the first thing I realized probably a year into doing it was that when I started out, I'd speak to people who were very impressive and I was a medical student and I was very intimidated by them. And 
slowly I grew in confidence to the point where it became that I was the one who was more comfortable because I'm used to recording. I'm used to doing a podcast. And um, before I used to think everyone was really, really smart. Like everyone who was in a great position was just like this ridiculous, like V12 engine of a brain and I couldn't possibly compete with them. And then slowly I just realized that these are actually pretty normal people. Like anyone, national medical director, um, CEO of a massive company that's gone public. Like, I don't think they're particularly so, so intelligent that no one could be like them. And again, you know, I think as a medical student, you've, you've, you know, you've probably reached a threshold of intelligence. And beyond that, I don't think they're like super smart. So that was the first thing, they're realizing they're just normal people. Then the next question came, well, then how does a normal person become like them? And I think number one thing that I've noticed in them is just their stamina and hard work. I speak to people who are 65, 70, and they're still working really, really hard. And I also noticed that quite early on, even if they were doing different things to what they're doing now, so they were in academia or they were like a, like a, a doctor on the ward and now they're doing like business, they were really excelling at those things. So like, I remember I spoke to Stephen Readers who mentioned that he, you know, when he was junior doctor, he was like locoming on the weekends. He couldn't get enough of it. And he was really like topping what he was doing. So I think early on, maybe they top out in what they're doing. There's another guest, uh, Dr. Nir Barzilai, who mentioned that he'd been in the army when he was quite young. And within four or five years, he'd basically become chief medical officer of the army. And he's described that like whole experience as being something which taught him how to play a game and how to win that game. And then he applied those lessons now to where he's like a, a huge longevity researcher. So I think that was one interesting observation. The other thing I think I've noticed is that I think they travel in packs. They're not usually lone wolves. So there's this concept, Alex, that I know I'm sure you've heard of called like the PayPal mafia, which is the founders yeah, yeah. or the, yeah, the early builders of PayPal. They created PayPal and I think it sold for something like $250 million. Um, dollars. And that included people like Elon Musk, uh, Reid Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn, uh, Peter Thiel, uh, Keith Raboyce. And they've all gone on to do amazing things in their own right. And people kind of make the comment that there's no coincidence that they started off together, they did something together, and then they all ended up doing amazing things. Like, what are the chances that those four people from the same team all would do amazing things? And my kind of health tech, UK health tech spin on that is. One example is if you look at the people who founded, say, Doctorpreneurs, which is this network of doctor entrepreneurs, you had uh, Claire Noverall, who went on to be a co-founder of Ada Health, which is a, a tech health tech unicorn. Then you have Vishal Varani, who's now head of UK Health at YouTube. You have uh, Avi Mera, who's now associate partner at IBM. So what I mean, and from lots of other examples, I think these people are very collaborative people who are generally quite helpful. Like if you contact one of these people, they're not the kind of people who will ignore your email or you'll ask them to help you with something in a genuine way and they'll just ignore you. They're the kinds of people who will really go above and beyond. And I think that kind of reputation follows them. The last point is that it's very rare for them to be like a horrible person. You get this stereotype. And I think especially, you know, you go onto a medical ward and there's some just big shot consultant who's just like an awful person. And you just look at them and you think, how, how are you the leader of anyone? Like you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be. And I think in the bigger picture side of healthcare and big organizations that aren't the health service um, or aren't a hospital ward, I think it does pay to be nice. And I think all of these people are fundamentally usually good human beings and helpful people.
So I think those are some high-level lessons I picked up from them. You've touched on this already a little bit, but how do you think that your future career plans have changed since starting your podcast? I think one thing me and my mates used to have this game, which is it's really like school and high schooly, but you know, we'd we'd look at someone and we'd be like, is that person cool or not? Is that person cool? Is that person cool? And <laughs> one thing that always came out with me was that if someone was a doctor, I was just automatically like gave them a plus twenty percent. I was like, that person's cool. And everyone would be like, no, they're not. They like they dress like this, they look like this, they talk like this. And I'd be like, yeah, but they're a doctor. That's pretty cool. So I kind of exalted doctors a lot and then um, I became one and then I spoke to lots of amazing doctors. But then I think on that journey, I realized that in this whole mission of maybe improving people's lives or health spans in the whole world, um, doctors play a part of that, but they're not the be all and end all. And doctors have a lot of um, limit, limits in their thinking traditionally, right? So I think what it just made me think of is that there are just bigger things or there are alternate things that you as a doctor can be doing that don't involve things that doctors normally do and there are lots of kind of incredible people in um, policy and law just all these other industries that are actually having amazing impacts that don't get the credit for it necessarily so it just made me open my eyes a bit and just think there's more to life than this so moving into ai and machine learning used in healthcare where do you see it coming into the healthcare system in the next five years? Yeah, so the caveat to this is that I'm definitely not a builder in this space. So that limits what I have to say. But I do speak to a lot of builders and a lot of smart people about this. I think maybe the first pass of AI in healthcare has been these kinds of diagnostic algorithms and these predictive algorithms, which are just obviously fascinating. Like, wow, AI can predict this or AI can diagnose this. Isn't that amazing? And Maybe some of the less um, sexy things. So things like there was a paper by um, Amy Nelson and Gerant Reese in 2019 where it looked at how can we use AI to predict people who are likely to miss their hospital appointment so that then we can give them a call in advance and say, hey, you've got a hospital appointment. Um, do you fancy coming? And that was quite an interesting use, like that kind of logistics or something that's solving a very real problem with a very direct cost to the health service of people missing appointments, missing scans. And it's not something that you would immediately think of when you think of AI and healthcare. So I think there is maybe room for these less sexy applications of AI and healthcare. The other thing I would say is that in business school, we were taught this concept of having like a problem-based approach when you're making an innovation or a solution-based approach. Problem-based approach is there's a clear problem. Let's try and solve it. We don't care what the solution is. We're just going to solve this problem. And then the solution-based approach is like, hey, we've got this cool new technology. We've got Web3, we've got crypto, we've got AI. Let's see where we can apply this to solve a problem. Maybe a lot of the application currently or a lot of the research has been into a solution-based approach. We've got this new CNN, where can we apply it? And maybe one of the interesting routes or the interesting developments in this might be starting with the problem and saying, well, we've got this huge problem. And... Um, we're agnostic to the solution and maybe AI will come into some of those things. So it's maybe a bit of a grandiose statement for me to be saying as someone who's not a researcher in this space and not a builder in this space, but I do think that there might be more interesting solutions coming that address bigger, bigger problems or address real problems rather than just thinking, where can we apply this tool? As far as the application of AI in the healthcare system goes in the next five years, what do you think are the most significant barriers to, uh, to its uptake? One of my um, 
friends called uh, Mark Sendak, who's at Duke, wrote a really good paper on this. It was actually in the uh, MIT Sloan Management Review. So it's a cool paper because it's like business people and medical AI researchers, and they both combine. And one of the really interesting points was that in medical AI and when it's going to be adopted in the health system, it's often the people who are expected to use it are often the people who are losing out. So say the doctor in A&E who has to use this new screening algorithm or predictive algorithm, suddenly that doctor, she's now got this issue where she's losing her autonomy. She's probably having to not only do the initial work she was doing anyway in taking the history from the patient, but now she has to enter it into the system and then deal with all of that hassle. And really, she doesn't, she doesn't want it. She doesn't need it. She's, she believes or probably is perfectly capable in making that decision. And it's probably the, the wider health system or someone downstream who benefits from that. Um, so maybe if there's like a 1% efficiency saving or a, or a 2% uh, drop in missed cases, right? So it's, there's, there was this like kind of uh, disconnect between who's expected to do the work and who's actually benefiting from it. So what's the solution to that? And one of the interesting things they suggested was that why don't we, when we are making these tools, really speak to these people and think of ways of helping them as well? So if, for example, this tool is uh, screening for a uh, pulmonary embolism or something like that, then, okay, so she's had to do all this extra work to use our tool. But why don't we do it so that if our tool decides that this was a really low risk of being a PE and she agrees, then our tool will automatically uh, write the discharge summary for the patient, email it to the GP, and it will organize the follow-up care as well. So I think these, there's some novel solutions to this. And I think, I think that disconnect between being like, okay, we're taking autonomy away from people. We're also creating some extra work for them. But how can we kind of benefit them is like an interesting approach to getting it widely adopted. And beyond the sort of incentive for the actual uh, clinician using the tool to, uh, to use it and for it to benefit them directly, uh, have you seen any other common pitfalls in healthcare machine learning papers? So one is just generally, I mean, broadly in terms of just healthcare machine learning papers is I think they're just totally unintelligible for anyone. Um, I don't understand how anyone reads them. I have a belief that in the UK, there might be a thousand to 10,000 people who can probably read a healthcare ML paper because it takes um, really tertiary, really specialist knowledge of medicine and then combines it with really specialist knowledge uh, of machine learning and science and maths and statistics so um i think they're just totally unintelligible i think that's the biggest problem and i think sometimes or i think maybe we're locked in this tradition of writing a paper in a way that is very objective and you speak in the third person and you don't say i or we and you make it super complicated and super objective and i think that does have some purpose about being specific about being very precise with what you mean but I think in general, the more precise you are, the more confusing you become as well. Um, I mean, Twitter is a great example of this because if you write something in 140 characters, there's really a limit with how precise you can be. So the benefit of that is everyone just understands your tweet. But the downside of that is that you make statements that sometimes people feel like they were too general or people feel like you were trying to offend them or people feel like you're not thinking about this or this or this. So essentially, I just think they're just, I think the biggest problem with these papers are they're just very few people can truly understand them. So what information do doctors most urgently need to improve their understanding of machine learning papers? Yeah, this is an interesting point because I thought about this and a lot of my smarter friends are thinking about this in terms of what can we 
arm doctors with it? What kind of knowledge can we give them? That would mean that they kind of have the uh, medical AI 101, right? So they can just digest a paper. Um, after trying to actually obtain this knowledge myself, I am of the opinion that I don't think, I don't think doctors really should necessarily have this knowledge, right? I think it's quite specialist knowledge. And I think what's more useful, um, let me just make a side point, is that I was speaking to Josh Landy, who's a doctor who founded Figure One, which was like Instagram for doctors, um, was used by 40% of students in North America, 3 million users. And he made a really interesting point, which was that he got the biggest learning when he saw people discussing the paper. So when he, not the paper, sorry, discussing cases and just kind of being the fly on the wall and listening to them discuss something and disagree with things. And that's where he got his learning from. So I essentially think it should be the jobs or the, um, not the duty, but it, it could be, it could be an interesting role for other people to be doing this kind of digesting and finding what these key insights are and presenting these to doctors because does a doctor really need to know what, you know, uh, what the CNN does or what, what X, Y, Z, or really, can you just say to them, okay, this is a algorithm that took in some data. This is why it's good. This is some potential limitations, but this is what it showed. And is that really, you know, 80, 20, uh, where you can get 80% of the result from just 20% of the knowledge. So to answer your question, I don't know if doctors should have that knowledge or should be expected to. I think potentially it's a role for other people to make that palatable for them. Probably the journals. So it ties in very nicely to explain this paper, which uh, you're working on. So where is it now? and Where do you see it going in the next few years? Yeah, so our vision for Explain This Paper was essentially that we looked at this website called Genius.com. And if you've ever listened to like, a, you know, a rap song or some song with yeah, very yeah, particular yeah, dialect from, say, the north of England or from south London, and you just listen to the song and you're like, what does it mean? Well, there's a website where they literally have the song lyrics and side by side, they have explanations of what everything means. And it'll be really random terms about random stuff. And they'll explain it really well. And you just have this kind of side by side spark notes type view. So I was thinking, why don't we do this for medical papers? Why don't we just like fill it with emojis, make it really short and just really tell you, tell you the 80% of what you need to know in 20% of the time. So we started this website called explainthispaper.com. And we were very fortunate to get some funding from uh, Newcastle University, from Santander, some um, from a digital health unit in London as well. And in terms of where we wanted to go with it, we wanted to essentially have the case that every week, any paper in the health ML uh, sphere that you saw, you could go onto our website and get a really, really basic understanding of it. And of course, that's a bit unrealistic because that's probably hundreds of papers. But we thought, why don't we just, you know, the top five papers or the top 10 papers or the top 20 papers, at least the papers people are talking about, you should be able to go on there and understand them. What we found really challenging was that there's, it's a very special skill to be able to condense and summarize these findings. So we didn't, I don't think we scaled as fast as we hoped we could. And we don't think we had the impact um, that we hoped we could have done. But that doesn't mean we won't do going forward. But it just means that I think we focus very heavily on um, scaling to like uh, summarizing a hundred papers every week when really just summarizing a few every week is actually quite a good job. So I guess now looking forward, we're thinking of ways in which how can we make it so that anything interesting or anything relevant to clinicians in ML and health is accessible to them every single week. And one of the forays we've been thinking about is into NLP, so natural language processing, 
And we've been trying some of these new tools out and seeing if, you know, if you go into Reddit, you can see these Reddit bots that do a really, really good job of summarizing new news articles in like 20 words or like 50 words. And they just seem to do it so effortlessly. We try to apply these NLP tools to <laughs> medical uh, AI papers, and unfortunately, they don't work quite as well. But we're essentially thinking, okay, if we going forward, if we want to really achieve this mission, can we think of ways of automating it? Or secondly, can we think of building a community around it so that this is a kind of collective human consciousness instead of a, a, a computer one? Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, I guess, where we've got to and where we want to go to as well. And have there been any books that you found particularly useful? Yeah, I think a big shout out always has to go to Tim Ferriss, um, all of his content, the four hour work week, his podcast, that's a massive one. I think maybe one of the more rogue suggestions that I don't think a lot of people have heard of is called What It Takes by Stephen Schwartzman. So he's the um, founder and CEO of uh, BlackRock Capital, who manage, I think, $900 billion of funds or something. And in that book, he gives a really honest account of everything he did to get to where he is. So I think that's, I think that's amazing that that exists in a 10 pound book. Like that knowledge is, should be priceless. Like if someone said to me that this book, I'm going to charge you 2000 pounds to access it. I'd probably consider paying for it because, and it, and it just happens so that, you know, books are priced at 10 pounds. So I think that's awesome. But one of the really key things that he keeps on talking about is that it's just as easy to achieve something massive as it is to achieve something small. So in a very solid example of that, someone who owns like a shop or owns a restaurant probably works just as hard as someone who owns like a multi-billion pound company. And he keeps on just pressing this notion in, in your head that you should always be kind of thinking of what your goals are and just 10xing them a bit. So I think that's been really influential for me. It does lead to the danger that you do start becoming a bit of a dreamer and dreaming up things in the shower and dreaming up schemes and not actually doing anything. But I think it's been really influential and I'd recommend anyone who's interested in building anything have a look at that book because to be honest i think you, you could sell it for ten thousand pounds and people would buy it and what are the most commonly recommended books from your podcast guests in terms of my podcast guests so this is an interesting one because i started off asking every single guest what book recommendation recommendations do you have and i thought it was a really good question because tim ferris asks it as well <laughs> and <laughs> what i realized was is that people sat on two camps here i'd say two-thirds where people were like I love reading. And then half of them, I think genuinely do love reading. I think half of them like saying they like reading, <laughs> which isn't meant to cause offense to anyone. But it, I think it is a point that I think it's kind of fashionable to say that you like reading and different people benefit from it in different ways. So that's one point. The other point is there was this third of people who said they don't really read and they just get all of their knowledge from experience, which I thought was an interesting point. But to answer your question in terms of good book recommendations, I found that I ended up getting a lot of recommendations for the kinds of books that would make like a top 50 pop science book list in the New York Times. Books like, you know, Daniel Kahneman or like Guns, Germs and Steel or like... Dale Sapiens. <laughs> that was my next one. That was the one I was actually going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I personally found that really unhelpful uh, because everyone kind of knows about these books. And I was really looking for the answer to find like, what's that one book? What's that one book? Um, and... I think a, one that comes to mind in terms of like a good niche book that someone recommended to me was Professor Neil Sabir, who's at UCL. He recommended a book to me called How to Measure Anything. And it's a really weird niche business book. 
And it's the interesting point in that book is that there's lots of things in life as an organization or as a person we want to achieve. So one of our goals, um, Alex, I know you certainly have this goal is, you know, how, like, how do I do good in the world? And then the next question comes, well, okay, that's my goal, but then how am I going to measure it? How am I really going to tell that I did good in the world? Because it's so abstract. And a lot of the times, and certainly for myself, my answer to that was, well, some things you just can't measure, right? So you can't measure how much good am I going to do in the world? You can't measure like how good of a father am I? Like it's not something you can really measure. And this book just basically called BS on that. It said, no, you can measure, you can measure all of this stuff. And the interesting framework that it gave me was that if you think of something like, you know, I want to do good in the world or I want to be a good father or whatever, if that thing has, if that thing is a thing and it has an impact, there will be some kind of, there will be some kind of change in the world that happens because of that thing. And you just need to do this mental exercise where you think of, okay, in the world where I'm a great father or in a world where I'm a great athlete or in a world where I'm a great giving generous person, what would that world look like? How would it be different to how it is right now? And as soon as you do that exercise, I think you can start thinking of ways to measure it. So it taught me, it taught me that. It taught me that basically you can pretty much measure everything. And it's a bit of a cop out to say, that no, you can't measure certain things because they're too abstract and they're true, too cerebral or too pure. So I think that's an interesting uh, suggestion. A big thank you to Mustafa for his time. Links to where you can find him online are in the description. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review on iTunes.